The National Institute for Permanent Family Connectedness is podcasting a series of interviews that spotlight the emerging shifts and practice trends in child protection systems around the globe. We share these conversations in order to provoke discussion and to further practice innovation that betters the experience of young people, parents, families, and communities in need of support. In this episode, I interview Kim Stevens, Program Manager at the North American Council on Adoptable Children. Kim has worked for NACAC for over 20 years, first as a board member and president, and then as staff. In her present role, Kim directs efforts to expand post-adoption services throughout the United States and Canada, providing training and support to parent and youth leaders. She is a collaborative partner on two federal curriculum development projects and takes a lead on legislative advocacy efforts. Kim provides training and consultation, both nationally and internationally, on a number of subjects impacting child welfare, including trauma and recovery, youth permanency, youth and parent engagement, and leadership development. Kim was recognized as an angel in adoption in 2017. She and her husband have six children, four of whom were adopted from the public foster care system. In advance, I'd note that there is a fair amount of ambient sound present during this conversation, as Kim and I conducted this interview in a hotel lobby corner that turned out to be much noisier than expected. So sorry. Hi, Kim. What were some of the more significant experiences in raising your children that impacted your beliefs and informed your professional approach? Okay, nice to be with you, Bob. So my name is Kim Stevens, as you said. My husband and I decided before we got married that we wanted to adopt some children out of the foster care system and first had two birth children. When they were two and eight, we decided it was time to start adopting and went forward thinking that we would adopt a little girl Mm -hmm. in between their ages and met a fantastic social worker who happened to also be an adoptive parent and a birth parent and read us like we were a book with 48 point font on it and introduced us to a 15 year old boy. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that he introduced us was he invited us to an adoption matching picnic where workers bring their you know, kids that they're looking for homes for, experienced foster adoptive parents are there with their kids, and families that were like us that were just exploring things and trying to figure out who are the kids. And our social worker, Chris, happened to know that my husband was a basketball fan. The two of them connected over that. So we showed up at this picnic. Chris was standing next to this 15-year-old kid that was about four foot nothing. Mm-hmm chucked a basketball at my husband and said, hey, you and Jim will have a great time. He loves basketball, too. We found out after the fact that Jim had never played basketball. But he and Buddy, myself, and our kids, and my sister, who happened to be with us, spent the day playing basketball. And when we left, we stopped at the store to order furniture because we knew that was our kid. Wow. And about two months later, he moved in with us. Wow. And he told us, and you know... So we were kind of young to have a 15-year-old for a son, and we were also knowingly naive. Like, we knew that we didn't have a clue what we were doing. But we thought that if we paid attention to him, we would learn some things. Mm -hmm. And what we paid attention to was the fact that as happy as we were about him joining the family, 
he was not a happy camper. He joined our family because he wanted to get out of where he was. Mm. And he was very clear about that. Mm. He was a really good kid, well, like, no challenges, but also was very closed off. He'd been let down by person after person, sure. family after family, and literally would not speak to us unless there were other people around mm. to observe that he was a good kid, because mm. that was mm. his persona. I, I kept thinking about it and thinking about it because I knew that there was something that he didn't understand about commitment, first of all, and he certainly didn't understand who we were. And probably two years into his being in our family, so by this point, two years later, he's already been adopted. He's almost 17. He's still not connected at all, a bit connected to our youngest son, who was not really a threat to him, but not really connected to the other son. And I walked into the room, and he was watching cartoons, and he was laughing hysterically. And as soon as I walked in the room, shut down completely, stopped laughing, stoic face again. And I said, Jim, I just I want to talk to you just for a second. You don't have to answer me. I'm, I don't want anything from you. I just want you to know something that I don't think you know. So when your dad and I met you and when we decided to go forward and when we adopted you, in those moments we decided that you would be our son forever, no matter what you ever did. But here's the part that I really don't think you know, is that we don't, we don't expect that you're naturally going to let us be your parents. You may, you may not, but even if you decide we never can be your parents, you always will be our son. That's our agreement with you. That's our commitment to you. And he went off to the Navy about a year and a half later and wrote me a letter from boot camp hmm. to say two things. Well, actually three things. First of all, meeting other people from all different backgrounds, he realized that his life was actually not as much worse as other people's mm -hmm. as he thought. Mm -hmm. He realized that a lot of kids that grow up in families and don't leave those families don't necessarily have a great time of it. Right. But most importantly, he reflected back on that conversation about giving him permission mm -hmm. to let us be his parents. And he reflected back on an incident that was not a big, well, I mean, it was an important incident, but it was definitely not a make it or break it thing for us. He thought it would be. And he mm -hmm. said in that moment when he told us what had happened, what he had done, he expected to be kicked out. And that when we didn't kick him out, but instead followed through on the promise I'd made, mm -hmm. that you'll always be our son, mm -hmm. that was the moment that he decided that we could be his mom and dad. Mm -hmm. A couple years later, we met our two daughters, Justice and Tanya. Justice and Tanya never lived with their birth mom. They lived in foster care until they were seven and eight and joined our family. They lived in 13 different homes between them, and they suffered all kinds of abuse in those homes. And again, had no reason to trust anybody. And it became very clear very quickly that Justice was the parent to Tanya mm -hmm. and that I was not going to be mm -hmm. her mom no matter what. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what else to do. I mean, anything that I did right, it was because I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And so I asked Justice to help me figure out how to be a parent. I invited her into the process yeah, yeah. and I talked about the fact that I would like her to have a childhood but that I definitely needed her help. And we developed a really nice rapport that started then, a couple of years into the relationship again, where she was very clear that um, 
she could teach me how to be a parent if I would only pay attention. I paid attention, um, and it did help me be a better parent. Well, then fast forward another, I guess it was another four or five years after that, I happened to luck into a job at Massachusetts Families for Kids. It was a program that was funded by Kellogg Foundation. They had lots and lots of money that they were giving to, I think, 19 different sites. Massachusetts happened to be one of them, and I was invited to come on board as their part-time youth and family advocacy coordinator. And so the first thing that I did was try to put together a youth team. Mm -hmm. And I called everywhere to try to get people to let folks come in, and nobody wanted me to work with their kids. So I went back to Chris, the social worker, who I had been a MAP trainer with, and I talked to him about some of the families that we had trained, got in touch with those families, and invited seven kids six kids that were part of families that I had trained with so they knew me and they were not afraid of me and my daughter Justice who liked to tell me how to do a better job <laughs> and we spent a day talking about what do you wish social workers and parents knew who are the audiences that you need to talk to to help them understand that and who wants to sign up today to do that my experience with trying to get kids through the system to be part of this was very clear to me that I wasn't going to get anywhere by trying to build something. So we decided over a pizza party who the kids were that wanted to talk about different things, who the audiences were that they wanted to talk to, and we started talking about here are some dates and times that I think we might be able to get into either a map panel or a DSS training or whatever else, and who wants to sign up. And so with that, we told the department that we had a team, we had a speak-out team, mm. that they were ready and willing to talk about the things that they had identified. Sibling connections, openness and adoption and connections with other birth family members, race and culture and identity, educational issues, and really just transitioning into a family and how that is and how difficult it could be. And so for that first year, we took those seven young people and we sort of mixed and matched them according to their interest in such a way that the state of Massachusetts thought that we had this expansive team <laughs> of speakers. <laughs> and everywhere we went, we saw a few things. We saw, number one, that the young people that were involved in this were getting more and more personal power. <laughs> they were understanding themselves better. They were forming an incredibly cohesive group but they were changing minds. They were getting people to open up. They were getting people to think about the way they did their work and the way they did their parenting. And the more that happened, the stronger the kids got. Yeah. And the more people saw them, the more people yeah. were interested in being part of this. Yeah. And so at the end of about, I'd say about four years, we grew from seven kids to 130. Wow. And we had a few really important tenants around this work. Number one was that young people needed to be guided and supported in telling their stories in ways that were self-protective, mm -hmm. but also in ways that people could hear what they had to say. We knew that if they were bashing the system, yeah, we knew that if they were angry, people would shut down. And so what would happen is, I would often have a conversation just like you and I are having, and I would invite a young person that was interested in being part of the team, to just talk with me about what they want people to know. Sure. And I would say, can I be your secretary? Let me. I'm going to work for you. 
and I would write down or type everything they had to say. And then we'd have a conversation about how can you frame what you're saying in a way that people can hear it. So when you are, you know, Sally, you're telling me about this worker that did this crummy job and how much you hated her because she did this crummy job. Or you were telling me about a parent that really made you feel unwelcome. Yeah. So rather than talking about what they did that was wrong, can you help me think about how you would talk about what you would have done in their place instead? Yeah. So we took all the negatives and we changed it into a, sort of a, a positive strategy yeah. or a way to engage. Yeah. Yeah, Here's yeah, an yeah, opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. We also ensured that no young person was ever going to go to speak to anybody without an adult supporter with them. It was usually me. Mm -hmm. And well, why was that important? Well, a lot of reasons. Number one, I don't want anybody manipulating or using my kids, mm -hmm. any of them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for a kid to come into, into the system, or even not to come into the system, because we, just to back up, we had kids that had been adopted at birth, had been adopted internationally, who were in care, who had aged out of care, who were from a disrupted adoption, mm -hmm. who were from high-end intensive residential treatment placements, mm -hmm. who were with relatives. So the reason why it was important that they had an adult supporter all the time is because as systems, it's so easy. We don't mean to do it, but it is so easy to manipulate and to exploit kids. You know, we're looking for the kids that can say, the system's working, or we're looking for those yeah, kids that are yeah, doing great. Yeah. So we the can stars, say, yeah. exactly, look at the great job we're yeah, doing. Yeah. See, like Justify the public, and, well, yeah. and for many good reasons, like the sure. public doesn't understand, you right. want to put the best face right. forward. Right. And we want people to engage and to care about what we do in child welfare, but we can't do a good job if we're only putting forward right. Right. the kid that's going to do okay anyway. Right. We need to have the full gamut. And I'll tell you, one of the most powerful presentations, I still think about this almost word for word, I had two young men, both of them brilliant, both of them probably tested out at the genius level. Mm. Same age, and they both said to me they wanted to talk, you know, what would happen if we got a speaking engagement request, we'd put it out to the team, sure. who would like to talk, and then... Whoever wanted to talk could talk, and then whoever wanted to just be there for support could be there for support. Sure. And these two young men were so similar in so many ways and had completely different trajectories. Mm. One of them got a full scholarship to Harvard, got a Pepsi Challenge scholarship or something, has, had, has since gone on to get multiple master's degrees, wow. has won fellowships, has started his own agency has done all kinds of remarkable things. And the other one is a young man who at the time was a skateboarder, very much involved in drugs, and really floundering in a lot of ways. And the presentation they were doing, it was in front of the juvenile court, the child protection lawyers that have been assigned to kids. Mm -hmm. And they talked about their different trajectories. And so Super Harvard Kid had a worker and an attorney and a whole system of people including birth family members and extended family members that surrounded him from go and that made sure that every step along the way he had a voice and he had supports. 
and kiddo skateboard, never saw his court-appointed attorney, even though it was mandated, never had a conversation with a judge that was even the least bit supportive or positive, and didn't have any of those supports wow. around him. And what ended up happening is they're starting to tell their stories. Harvard and skateboard start just talking to each other, and they don't care about anybody else in the room, and they start comparing notes and process for the room about how simple things like an attorney that returns your call and comes to yeah. visit you yeah. and listens to what you want yeah. can make a huge difference, yeah. right? Yeah. There was another occasion we were, we were talking in front of the juvenile judges. Um, they had an annual conference, and we got to be on their um, agenda, and we had an open panel about birth family connections. And it happened that my daughter Justice and her birth mom Francine both wanted to speak at this. Mm. And I was the moderator but also the adoptive <laughs> parent. And in the audience were two judges that I knew because one of them had done Justice's adoption and the other one had done my younger son's adoption. Mm. Well, several things happened, and again, like this eye-opening stuff for people. When we showed up, so I drove Justice and her mom, we show up, and her mom, her first question is, should I lock my purse in your car? Well, you can, but you could take it with you. Oh, I didn't know I could. I've never been allowed to take personal belongings into court. And I said, oh, honey, we're, we're, first of all, we're not at court. This is a conference, and secondly, I'm so sorry. And then we get up on the panel, and Justice always ready to, you know, tell her story and inform people, good old Justice Advocate, tells her story, and she turns to her birth mom and says, Francine, it's your turn. And Francine can't speak. And she looks to me and she said, can, can you talk to me? And so, I did, and I talked about. I told the judges about this incident with the pocketbook, and I said, you know, this woman here is the woman who has allowed me to be the mom, because until we met her, because it was a close adoption, and Justice had said to me all along, I'll never let you be my mom until I meet my mom. And when we met her, this amazing woman said, you've got two moms now, so you better fly right. What incredible permission, right? right? right. So we get done, and the two judges that I knew are standing right next to each other. And I don't think they—they, they, I don't think that they remembered who I was. But Justice talked about, you know, judges, you can make a big difference. Not just about what my mom is saying and what my mom is saying, but let me tell you what: when I was adopted, my judge let us come into her office, and I got all dressed up, and it was a big day. And we were all standing there, and we said to her, so what do we do now? And she said, I, what, I just have to sign a paper, it's done. And she said, and my brother, when he went, this judge, he let us go in the courtroom, and he had on his robes, and everybody came up on the bench, and he told my brother, it's a magic pen, and it's going to change your life forever. And I can't believe that my judge was so creepy, and his judge was so good. So, we go out. It's over, we're chatting. The two of them are standing there. And Justice's judge says, I remember you now. Mm. And I'm really sorry, and I will never do that again. Wow. And her brother's judge 
is engaged in a conversation with Francine. Sure. And he turns to me and he starts talking to Justice in me. And I say, you know, Judge, you're the magic pen guy she's talking about. And he said, you're kidding. I said, no. And he said, well, I still feel like an ass. Because let me tell you what, I have never treated birth parents right in my courtroom. And so I learned a lot from this today. So this is that impact, right? That yeah. impact yeah. is amazing. So, yeah, I get I get sidetracked by the powerful stories, but so the the adult support has to be there. We we have a duty for our kids that we have to protect them. At the same time, letting them have their voice, right? Right? right. Like we can direct their voice, right? And we and we wouldn't. Um, they need to be respected. They need to be paid. Yeah. Everybody else in the room is getting right, paid. Right. Right. They need training so that they know what they're doing. So we brought in, like Dale Carnegie trainers came mm -hmm. in every, mm -hmm. every couple of years. We had a United Way trainer, speaking trainer that would come in. We would do a retreat every year. We would do a weekend long retreat that um, included ropes courses and mm -hmm. team building yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then also, you know, speak out team building. And, sure. You know, what's the story and how do you want to share the story? We, but then we also would do, all along the year, we would have opportunities all the time for kids to come together and just be together. And just not have to explain themselves. Right, right. So a pizza party or a, you know, a spaghetti fest or a pool party or a trip to the beach or a trip to Six Flags. And we made it so... I left that job in 2004, so 14 years ago. And probably out of 130 of the young kids that got involved in that particular speak out group, I would say at least half of them are still connected to one another. That's awesome. Um, in person, on Facebook, yeah, with yeah, me, yeah. texting, if somebody needs something. The other thing that we did with the team as well was it didn't matter it didn't matter if you showed up for anything. When you wanted to show up, you did show up and you were always welcome and everyone was always invited to everything. So since that time we went forward and we've helped a number of different jurisdictions try to put together speak out teams mm -hmm. and some of them have been really successful. Mm -hmm. The things that we insist upon are we won't come and help you if you don't have an identified staff person who I need to first talk to yeah, yeah. and figure out if they actually like kids. Yeah. We won't engage, <laughs> right? But I mean that's yeah, huge. No, we so won't true. engage you unless you are willing to give youth their voice. Yeah. They may say things you don't like. Right. Learn from them. Right. Right? We won't engage with you if you have any kind of an application process. Um, in, in my opinion, kids never had an option. They never had a decision. They never had any power or control. And I am not going to make them jump through hoops right. when they want to engage with us and right. try to teach us how to do a better job. Right. And I will say, so... We launched that team in 1997, so it's been 21 years, if my social work math is right. <laughs> I have never, ever, ever been in any venue where there has been a youth presentation, no matter what conference it is, no matter how big, no matter how impressive. I've never been anywhere where the ratings on what the people in the room learned, they are always the best for the young people. The young people teach them. Yeah. They only can do that if they have support, though. Right, right, and they right. only can do that if they're guided. Um, and in fact, the sad thing was that after I left that position, the person who took it over didn't have the same view and philosophy 
and the team started getting more and more negative about what they were sharing. And like mm-hmm. I said in the beginning, people can't hear the negative. Right. You don't you don't come into social work, you don't come into parenting, you don't right. come into teaching, any of those things without wanting to do a good job. Right. And so when you hear from living proof that you've done a crappy job, right. you gotta you gotta shut it down because right. it just hurts. Right. So we're very clear about how do you shape your message in a way that people can hear it. Yeah. The other thing that I think is a real commitment that you have to make is that as you get to know these young people and you get to know what their hopes and dreams and desires are, it's our responsibility to help them find a path to those places. Sure, sure. Right? Oh, I want to be a forest ranger. Well, let me t- introduce you to some people. Right, right. I want to be a weatherman. So we brought a bunch of kids that said they want to be weathermen. Mm-hmm. I think it was to Channel uh, 56 in Boston. Mm. You know, got them to open up the weather station. And, mm. and many of the young people that I've been involved with over time have gone on to incredible professional careers. And many others, you know, are still floundering. Sure. But they're successful in their own way. Right. They're connected to people. Right. They have relationships. It's it's powerful. Yeah. And I don't think that I don't think systems can change. In fact, I think it's impossible for systems to improve or to transform or whatever we want to call it now. Yeah. Without listening to the people who have the lived experience. Yeah. We can be as smart as we want, but we don't know what that was like. We just don't know. So, what can organizations do who? Um, have not had a history or a familiarity with how to do some of that readiness work so kids, young people uh-huh. with lived experience can be out in front yeah. um, and to how to strategically include them in the most meaningful aspects of helping them learn about how they can do better with the current families and kids mm-hmm. that they're working with. Yeah. What are some strategies you think that organizations, public or private, yeah. can do to to really treat the young people and the families that have gone through them, mm-hmm. uh, their systems, as assets. Mm-hmm. To see them as assets mm-hmm. rather than liabilities or costs or stories. Yep. Yeah. So, at the very first engagement with a family or a kid, I think the first question that we should be asking, as soon as a child is old enough to speak, who takes care of you when mommy can't? Mm-hmm. Who do you feel safe with? Mm-hmm. Who comes to Christmas? Who's at your mm. Hanukkah celebration, mm. right? Mm. Like, ask the child. Right. Mom or dad may not be in a place where they feel safe to tell you. Mm. They may be resentful of those people. Right. But if you ask a child, and if you do it in a way that is not threatening or scary, you know, hey, Johnny, just, yeah, hey, what's, you know, what's it like for you on a good day? Right. Who's right. around when right. you're having a great day? Right. Not... You know, not that probing, yeah, tell me yeah, the dirt, yeah, yeah, first of all. Right. Um, I think engaging with, with kids where they are, I mean, the, the simplest thing is, how about I'm not talking to you right. from up here and you're right. down there. How right. about getting down to a kid's level? Right. How about letting a kid tell their story to you as a, you know, an intake worker or, or even an ongoing worker in their words without correcting them? Yeah. You know, kids tell their stories with the words that they knew, right? And then we try to correct them to say it in a way we can hear it, to protect our adult self. Right, right. We're shutting them right down when we do that. Right. It's craziness. My words are better than your words. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's not a PP. Yeah. Well, no, it is. (laughs) That is what it is. You know, don't say that to a kid. Right. 
how about from day one we write case notes about kids like we would write baby books about our own children. Yeah. How about we know when their first word was? Right. When they walked, when they talked. Right. You know? What was their favorite little toy that made them feel safe? Yeah. Well, how about pictures throughout the case notes of a child growing up so that when I adopt a 15-year-old boy, the only picture I have of him is a two-by-three from his second grade wow. class. The only time he ever knew what he looked like as a kid was when he had a son of his own. Wow. You know? Like, it's called social service because it's about connecting people to society. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and we have somehow gotten away from all of that and everything is pathologized. Yeah. Rather than through the eyes of a child. Right. And, and quite honestly, really, if we want to think about our kids and our families as assets, the only question we ever have to ask ourselves is, is this good enough for my kid? Is this good enough for my family? Is this good enough for someone I love? And if we treat every case and every family that comes through the door, every child, it's not a case, it's a child, it's a mom, it's a dad. Right. If we treat them the way we would want our family to be treated if we interacted with right. the system, right. then we absolutely would be doing the right thing. Yeah. In terms of assets, you know, if you look at any other business in the right. world, exactly. any business in the world, we interview our customers, right. we ask them what they need, right. we do satisfaction surveys. Right. In this industry, I find it appalling that it is expected that our product, children leaving foster care, are going to be damaged. Yeah. We expect that our system is going to damage them. Yeah. Well, first of all, change that damn ex expectation. Right. Because the expectation somehow gives us permission to do crummy work. Yeah, yeah. But if we change the expectation, and if we really did what I think everybody comes into this work for, which is to help families and to help children, yeah. it, it, it changes everything. Yeah, yeah. It changes everything. Yeah. One of the kids that was on our Speak Out team, this kid Matthew, I love Matthew. So Matthew actually ended up on our Speak Out team because he was referred to our agency at the time for adolescent permanency services. He was referred at 18. No, sorry, he was referred at 17. He was going to be 18 in six months. He had attempted suicide several times and had been in a locked facility for most of his life from, or from the time he was like 10 on. And I was tasked with finding him a permanent family that could not be his mother. Mm. And yet, the most recent RTC that he was in, he had run away from 35 times in the past year. Holy cow. And every time he ran away, he ran away to his mom. Mm. And, but I wasn't supposed to talk to her, and I wasn't supposed to help her, mm. and I wasn't supposed to let him talk to her. So, so Matthew decides he'll join the Speak Out team because at least then he could get some socializing. And he starts to like the kids on the team, and he starts to connect with them, and he starts to connect with me. And the week before he was supposed to be discharged, he ran away again and was being threatened with... Somehow it became a probation issue, and there's mm. going to be a lockdown, and I knew where he was. So I went to his mom's house, because I'd been there many times, and, and I, I knocked on the door, and she, Deb came to the door, and I said really loudly, So, Deb, I know Matthew's not here, because he knows he can't come here. 
but I'm thinking maybe he's somewhere in town. So I'm going to drive around looking for him. And if and if I find him, I'll bring him back and we'll try to sort this thing out. Yeah. So of course doesn't, you know, right, right, right. he comes out. <laughs> and I said to him, so Matthew, you know what? I know what I'm supposed to do for my job, but you're going to be 18 next week and then my job is officially done, but my connection with you is not because you're part of my speak-out team, so yeah. I can still be connected. Yeah. So um, I'm going to pick you up next week when they discharge you with no plan, and I'll bring you back to your mom's house, and we'll sit down and talk about what you think might work. And Deb and Matt made a list of things when we came back the next week of what they needed to do to make sure that they didn't kill each other, mm-hmm. that they didn't start using substances, yeah. that they didn't attempt suicide, because they all they both had the same issues. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and we feel like we did phone calls and lists and... I went online, I found things to help them out, and I said, great, so I'm going to come back in two weeks, and we're going to check on progress. And I come back two weeks later, and there's Matt Depp sitting on the couch, looking all down in the face, and all like sheepish, like, what's going on? What'd you, like, what'd you get done? Nothing. <laughs> we didn't have nothing. I said, are you kidding? That's fantastic. Well, what do you wow. mean? I said, well, I don't know. You told me two weeks ago you guys would either be in jail or dead or drunk and high when I came here. And look at you. Yeah. You're functioning. That's strength. Right. And, and like, the, like, huge smile. No one had ever identified anything that they did as a strength or an asset. Yeah. Never. Right. But, you know, clearly these people were connected to each other. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, I think, I just think... Every time that every time that I see an organization that looks to their young people to guide the practice, every time the practice improves, every time, without exception, throughout Canada, throughout the United States, all the different places I go, it always improves when they engage their youth and when they engage their, their families in the process yes. and in guiding the process. Yes. In fact, some of the best agencies that I know are agencies that work almost exclusively with lived experience people in the role of the helping provider now. Yeah, yeah. Because they get it. Yeah. And, you know, above all, like, what is, there's an expression, and I, I don't even, was it a book that I heard it or a movie? I certainly didn't make it up. But it's that if you call a dog by any name you want often enough and long enough, that dog's going to come to that name. Mm-hmm. And it's it's what our system sometimes yeah, does, yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's like we put the label in front of the kid. It's yep. a foster kid. Right. It's a birth parent. No, it's a kid and it's a parent. Yeah. yeah. And I've never met a parent that doesn't have some capacity. Right. Let's grow that. Right. I've never met a kid that doesn't have... Well, first of all, I've never met a kid that's in care that doesn't have by the time they're 10 or 12, a list of the things that they're supposed to do in order to be in compliance. <laughs> Why is the kid supposed to be in compliance? Yeah. What happened to we're serving the child? Right. Right? Right. And I can yell about it all I want, and I just sound like that crazy nut. But when I talk about it next to my expert colleague, who is a young person that lived that experience, right. I make change. I do now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, um, Kim, I one, one last question as we kind of wrap up. Would you like to share a little bit about the current work that you're doing with folks in Canada? Ah, uh, yes. I bet you will. Fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, this project is called Never Too Late for Family. And it came out of a vision that a friend and colleague of mine in Canada who has access to her family foundation, and she's just a brilliant forward thinker, um, dreamed up after adopting um, her 17-year-old daughter who arrived here somehow or another, got here from North Korea without any connections to anybody. Yeah. And, and Aviva just kept thinking about you know, we made a family with this young woman, but how many other kids, so many are out there. And mm. in Toronto, not unlike other cities, there's a huge homeless youth problem. Right. So she came to me and asked me if I would help her on this project because she knew about our experience with adopting our son Jim, and she also knew that I like kids more than I like adults, and I'm pretty good at listening to them and working with them. Um, so her concept, which we are now, we started the last week in December, so you know we're now 10 months into it. Her concept is that we, as two adult supporters, are going to partner with a team of youth, and we have a team of about, well, it depends on the week, but anywhere from 7 to 12 youth, young adults, who have lived experience, and they are helping us guide a process where we will be working with young adults who have aged out of the foster care system and are homeless, or maybe not homeless, but many of them are, and adults that have a heart and a passion for teenagers and young adults themselves. And we're developing several different curriculum pieces. One is for staff that work with youth homeless population. One is for the youth themselves to try to consider permanency. And the way that they've, they've sort of drafted that at the beginning stages is they're all thinking about so what was that moment when I finally thought maybe I could consider family at 19 or 22 yeah, yeah. or 25 yeah. um, and trying to connect the dots for young people to yeah. see like this is possible right. it's scary but it's possible and then in conjunction with that a seven session training for the adults that are willing to make a parenting commitment for them to understand a lot of things, some of the stuff that we usually talk about with sure. permanency, sure. but also the fact that this is a very different relationship. You're talking about an adult relationship, not a, right. a mommy-child relationship. Right. Right. You're talking about making a parenting commitment to someone who may not ever live with you, right? right? And who probably has their own posse family that yeah. they've created. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it's not just, it's all that right. they bring. Right. And one of the young people talked really eloquently, and it's a big part of what we want to do, is to help the adult folks understand that people have different ways and different languages around love. Mm. And so you have to understand your young person's love language yeah. in order to connect with them. So that is like a huge piece. But at the same time, what's been so cool is that the government in Canada has infused about $8 million into youth homelessness prevention, and fortunately the youth homeless serving agencies understand that they know how to do services. They know how to find housing, and they know how to set someone up with a job, or teach them how to balance a checkbook, 
course, that's hard when they have no money to put in that. But, yeah, well. <laughs> but they don't understand relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where we come in, is uh -huh. we're going to be partnering with, the, with them to help understand how to build relationship, how to help it grow organically, how to put the opportunities in place yeah. so that young people and people that are going to end up loving them are in the same place yeah. at the same time working on not trauma right. and not right. grief and not your challenges, right. but what are you interested in? Right. Where do we connect? Where is our playing right. field right. the same? Right. And we really Which are healing experiences, right? As opposed experience. to just working on the trauma, yes. it's like finding the connection and doing yes. stuff together and being valued for what you're interested yes. in and what you can bring. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. One of our young people that's a part of it, this young woman is so amazing. I met her like three years ago and talk about manipulation and exploitation. I was asked to come to this agency up in Toronto to do a presentation to try to get this community-based organization's people yeah. thinking about what can I do for a young person. I had several young people that I already knew up there that were going to be part of my presentation. And then they threw this young woman at me, poor thing, and said, oh, she's going to be part of it too. So why don't you get to know her for a half an hour? Yeah. And then they paraded her out like, oh, Bob, it was awful. They paraded her out. <laughs> oh, here's someone who needs someone for Friday night supper. And fortunately, there was a really good family in the audience that understood what needed to happen better than the agency did, stepped up to the plate and said, you know what? We'll be here for you. Let us help you figure out finances. At this point in time, this young woman was... Uh, um, she had graduated high school, she wanted to go to university, but she was going to end up in an apartment that she wasn't going to be able to afford with a roommate to help her afford it that she knew was more challenged than she was, yeah. and she was going to end up spending all her time taking care of this other kiddo. So, much like my gym, I just don't want to be there, so I'll yeah. go there. Yeah, 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 she yeah. made that kind of a uh -huh. decision. Uh -huh. And um, she miraculously came to be part of Never Too Late for Family. Mm. And so the very first meeting that we had together, my style is just to be there. Like, right. I'm here to hear and right. learn. You guys yeah. are teaching me. And at the end of it, she, she said, do you remember me from that event? And I said, I do. That was a weird event. And she said, yeah, I was really angry about it. I really mm. felt used. I said, you know what, kiddo? I really felt like you were used, too. And I felt really badly about it. And I apologize. I would not have done that to you, but I didn't have any control. She said, okay. Well, 10 months have gone by, and she and I have developed a nice relationship that started with, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? right. I can hear you. And she was just saying, I was there again uh, last week, or the week before, and she was saying that she was helping to create the, the training part for the youth, and she was saying, you know, the moment that I decided I would give fam, what she calls them family, like a friend yeah, family, yeah, yeah. and she also calls them her, her humans. <laughs> when I decided I'd give them a chance was when I, I did my budget and I realized, holy shit, there's no way this is going to work. Right, right. If these suckers are willing to support me, all right, Yeah. why not? Yeah. They have very thoughtfully let her come to them. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, kind of like yeah. you do to a hurt right, right. animal. Right. They've let her come to them. And as she was leaving our meeting the last time we were together, she was talking about the fact that she has all these awards for different things she's done. She's brilliant. 
and she's going to hang them on her wall in her room in that house. I'm like, hey, kiddo, that's kind of like a permanent commitment right there to your walls, isn't it? She laughed. She said, I know what you're saying, and yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's enough. (laughs) But that's enough. Exactly. But that's enough. And, and, you know, it's been a struggle because, you know, this group of young people, they need someone and they know that they do. Yeah. And yeah. They, they keep like sort of doing this dance of, is it a beaver they want to be connected to, right, or is right. it me they want it to be right. connected to? And then there's this infighting about who's the favorite child. Yeah, yeah. And if Eva and I were talking afterwards, and I was like, the only thing that we need to do at this stage is to keep them working together. Yeah. we got to go as slowly as they right, do, right. because they're the key to our success. Right. Right? And we, we won't engage in that. Right. We just have to make it okay. Yeah. Do we stop a meeting early because it's starting to get tense? Yeah. Sure, if we have to. Yeah. And and every time those kids come together, they get paid for uh-huh. their time. Right. I'm getting paid. Right. Aviva's getting paid. Right. They get paid. Right. Yeah, they're our partners. Yeah. It's a I, cool project. I think one of, one of the pieces that you mentioned that really um, occurs to me and sticks to me is the way we've constructed independent living services and all that kind of stuff, which, you, as you know, I rue those that language and teach them in classroom-based settings, which has been really determined to be ineffective, mm-hmm. that this relational approach where you find common ground and mm-hmm. people that are interested in working with folks mm-hmm. or people that are important to the young people, and you allow for the local knowledge, because sometimes we have people teaching stuff to young people who know less than the families that they're potentially working with. So because we don't ask for local knowledge, because we don't invite the contributions, because we don't see our families as assets, we don't try to learn from them. Mm -hmm. Or even maybe somebody has a particular skill that all the other families that are in our organizations could learn from. We bring them in to teach as opposed to having someone with some training be the expert to all kids around all stuff around quote-unquote independent living. Um, And by the way, I've said this a million times, but I'll just say it for the podcast, it's interdependent. No one here is independent. We no never kidding. were and no we never kidding. will be. We were born <laughs> independent, we'll interdependent, we will die interdependent. But anyway, I, 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 feel like, I feel like that message is starting to gain some traction around uh-huh. that we have to rethink uh, how we deliver these quote-unquote services and that it has to be utilizing a relational approach. And of course, all, all the literature on learning tells us this, right? I mean, right. this isn't new information, but we're just sort of getting to that place where we're like kind of trying to incorporate it. So I, I appreciate the experience that you're sharing around that and, and, and just wanted to comment around how I think young people can be so much better ready for the challenges they'll face when we engage them with people that mm-hmm. can help do the co-learning and they can teach each other. Right. Um, as well as, you know, it's fine for us to have assets and services that we can provide where there's gaps. Right. And then that's welcome, that's asked for, exactly. rather than And the services the that they want, rather you, than right. the ones that we right. happen to have in our back right. pocket. Right, because now we're going to sit and learn how to write a resume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, I even think about, you know, that what you were saying about learning is relational. Anybody that thinks back on high school in particular, the classes that you learned something in yeah. were the classes where you liked the teacher. Right. And if you didn't like the teacher, right. you didn't learn a freaking thing. Right. You know, and then we like forget that right. about our own experience. Maybe that's why I'm good at, at my youth stuff is because I never grew up. I don't know. But <laughs> I, like, I, re- I remember being a teenager. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I remember what worked for me and what didn't. Yeah. And you know, I just we throw so much of that out the window. Yeah. Kim Stevens, thanks so much for your time. It's a wonderful oh, conversation. Friend, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Always look forward to it. To learn more about NIPFC's written products and training offerings, or to sign up for our permanency blasts, visit our website at familyfinding.org or email familyfinding at senecacenter.org.